0: Well, good morning, beloved. Good morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles uh, and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 19. John chapter 19. This morning we really have some extraordinary verses to cover once again. Um, As last week, if you were with us, we had the resurrection in Matthew's Gospel. Um, Just a wonderful service last week. Um, What was there, Seventy. Two people it turned out it was just a really wonderful joy and um, so many smiles and, and tears uh, hearing the proclamation of, of God's word. Um, but we return to our journey through the gospel of John um, and this week it's uh, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ as a pastor you really cannot have uh, two better weeks in preaching on the resurrection and the crucifixion. Um, I want to begin this morning. I probably should have brought my clicker somewhere around here. (laughs) There we go. Uh, I want to begin by reading our passage. We'll read that once all the way through and then um, after we can look at each of the verses more carefully. So let's uh, pick up where we left off the last time in verse 16 and... um, I'm going to read right through to verse 30. John chapter 19, 16 through 30. And this is the reading of God's living and infallible word. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. To see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, their sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I want to take you back some 2,000 years ago to Jerusalem and the hill called Calvary. Calvary's cross. It is nine o'clock in the morning. And we have just witnessed Jesus go through a series of mock trials. The last was before the Roman governor Pilate. And Pilate asked the mob who had gathered and the Jewish leaders of Israel who had gathered outside of his headquarters, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered him, We have no king but Caesar. The crowd yelled, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And so Pilate delivered Jesus over to his Roman executioners, and they nailed the Lord Jesus to a wooden cross. And from 9 a.m. until noon, Jesus suffered this horrific execution. It was during these three hours which he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It was during these three hours that he said to one of the criminals, Truly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was also during this time, these three hours, that Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. But as the sun reached 12 noon, as Jesus hung on the cross, something truly miraculous and incredible happened. For as the Bible says, over the next three hours darkness covered the whole land as if it was night and the sins of his people whom he came to save were transferred onto the Lord by the visible hand of God the Father and for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us and Jesus entered into the judgment on our behalf upon the cross he stood in our place he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our punishment. He incurred the father's wrath in our place. He satisfied the divine justice for our iniquities. He endured the punishment of our lawless deeds. He redeemed us out of the pits. He bought us with his own blood He reconciled us to the Father. He took our sins far, far away, as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. This morning, I want us to revisit Calvary's hill. I want us to kneel at the foot of the cross and to look up at our bloodied Savior. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is the climax of redemptive history, and is the focal point of the plan of salvation. As the Son of Man, the Son of God was nailed to the cross and then was lifted up to die in our place. I don't know how long it's been since you have actually revisited these verses visiting Calvary and stood on those blood-stained slopes of Golgotha but I want God to remind us today of the finished work that He has accomplished. At the end of this text, He said, It is finished. And though all of the gospel writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit to detail the account of Calvary's cross, only John was there. And John adds some unique details as an eyewitness of the Lord's crucifixion as he takes us through six extraordinary scenes that we see in the text. The first one I want you to notice is the condemnation of Christ, the condemnation. It begins in verse 16, and after looking for every way possible to get out of this dilemma, Pilate now finally caves under the pressure. He has put off the Jewish leaders all that he can. He has offered Jesus over Barabbas. They said, give us Barabbas. He has said to them several times, I find no guilt in him at all. Here he realizes there's no way out of his dilemma, and so Pilate caves under the pressure and pronounces the death sentence upon Jesus Christ. So in verse 16 it says, so he, speaking of Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. And the them here refers to probably the Roman soldiers, four Roman soldiers and a centurion who would make up the execution party. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. And crucifixion was the first century version of the electric chair. It was a death sentence. And it was the most horrific death ever designed to put someone to death publicly, but in reality there was a greater hand at work here than merely Pilate and a group of religious leaders because we read in Acts 2.23 that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God for Jesus was the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. He was born in order to die for our sins. Jesus prayed in John 17, One, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And so the hour has finally come for the sovereign hands of the Almighty God, the Father, to hand over his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be crucified upon Calvary's cross. Let us never see Jesus, though, as a victim here, for he will be the victor. It is for this that he has come into the world to die. And so we read, they took Jesus and he went out. The Roman soldiers now took Jesus away from the the judgment seat that was before Pilate and begins to walk to the cross. Verse 17 says he went out and never did a falsely convicted man ever go out more willingly than the Lord Jesus Christ. And by doing so, he fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth. And so it says in verse 17, he went out bearing his own cross. That would be the wooden horizontal crossbeam, which was laid upon his shredded back and, and shoulders. And what was standard Roman procedure, the condemned prisoner was then forced to carry the, the cross piece as he was led through the streets to the execution site. At this stage, the Lord's human nature has certainly exceeded total exhaustion. He is sleep deprived, having endured hours of beatings and ridicule, mock trial after mock trial through the entire night. But the Lord is a heroic figure and he went out bearing his own cross. And it says, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. The place of this call is associated with obviously the place of death. Much death has likely taken place on this hill earning its name. John also records that in Hebrew it is called Golgotha. It has come down to us to be learned in Latin as Calvary. It's Cranion in the Greek, it's where we get skull or cranium from. It represents the skull of a dead man. No hair, no tissue, just the skull. And so Jesus is carrying his cross being through Jerusalem as he's winding through this city some three quarters of a mile. The pathway is known as the Via Del Rosa, which means the way of sorrows. And as Jesus carried his cross, the people lined the streets. As he walked through, it was intended to be a a public statement that if you rise up against Rome, this will be your fate. And so as Jesus now approaches the end of the city and and the gates to the city, his legs began to buckle. And a man named Simon of Cyrene, a man who had traveled all the way from northern Africa, was compelled to carry the Lord's cross the rest of the way. And this speaks to us also, as if we are to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we too must carry our own cross. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You cannot be a follower of Christ unless you are denying self and carrying your cross. It is a cross of submission. Denying self is a cross of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We are all under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we are following him every moment of every day. As his will is unfolding in our life. So there's a cross for you and me. To also carry. And quite honestly. No one enters the courts of heaven. Who has not carried his cross. Here upon the earth. It is not an option. As carrying your cross. Is an emblem of death to self. And death to the world. Romans. 6 verse 8 says now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him and that's what makes the great exchange the good news doesn't it for if we are being judged based on our own life and our own deeds and our own good works we also would be condemned because of our sins but thanks be to God for he is the one who who has suffered condemnation on our behalf. And now the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus carried his cross as a condemned criminal so you and I don't have to. What a savior. That was number one, the condemnation. This leads us to number two. And the crucifixion. The crucifixion. I want you to notice the first four words of verse 18. There they crucified him. Now John doesn't go into any details or specifics concerning the crucifixion. It was probably so well known that nothing else needed to be said. But let us pause here for just a moment because you and I have never walked down the streets of Antrim or any other town or city for that matter and seen it lined with men being hung, nailed to the cross, suffering, and being crucified. Yep, we've seen pictures and we've seen the movies, but let us revisit, at least for a moment, what it truly is. A crucifixion, first of all, was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was the most dreaded death in the ancient world. It was so awful that Roman citizens themselves could not be crucified. There was just too much shame to be associated with it. It was improper to even bring it up in discussion in the public. It originated in Persia. It was picked up by the Phoenicians, but it was perfected by the Romans. And it was used as a deterrent. This is what will happen to you if you dare rise up against Rome and intentionally prolong the agony of a condemned man's death. In the electric chair, it's over like that. But a crucifixion was intended to prolong death. It was intended to take the person right to the very doorstep, the, the line of death and just leave you there hanging for hours, if not days on end. You were not even allowed the relief of death. They would just continue to suffer underneath this torment. There they crucified him. And we read with him were two others. One on either side and Jesus between them. John doesn't say much about these two other men. They're described elsewhere as thieves, robbers. They may have been a part of a wider revolutionary plan. The same word is used here, a Barabbas is used on these guys as well. They may have been insurrectionists, but we read one was on either side and Jesus was between them. The Lord Jesus is surrounded by criminals which just compounds the shame. But even this is a fulfillment of prophecy. In Isaiah fifty three twelve, it says, because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Once arriving at the place of the crucifixion, they would have been stripped naked of their clothing which came the property of the soldiers. Jesus would have been made to lay down on the ground, face up, arms were held and outstretched. On that cross beam, the nails would then be driven in through the, the hands or, or the wrists. The cross beam would then be attached to the, the upright post his body would be outstretched and then they would nail his feet in sometimes right through the the ankle bones and then he would be hoisted up by the four soldiers as the entire cross would slip and fall into the pre-dug hole rattling and jarring the entire body and Jesus would now endure this agony having to to pull himself up from time to time in order to to breathe in and to exhale, only then to collapse back down. And all of this caused yet even more pain, making it virtually impossible for him to breathe. There may have been a, a little platform built there at the foot of the cross where he could push up better, not as comfort, though, but as a way to prolong his death eventually your your arms the muscles would, would weaken and cramp and you would begin to sink where you could no longer push up unable to draw air into his lungs or exhale properly you slowly begin to suffocate and after hours or like I said even days in some situations of such torture The prisoner could die of shock, loss of blood, or by suffocation. None of us can even imagine the the physical pain of the cross that Jesus endured that, that day on Calvary. But the greatest suffering was not even his physical suffering. As countless men, hundreds of men, if not thousands of godly men were also crucified in Rome, Jesus was just one of many godly men who would have been crucified, but make no mistake, there was only one who bore the sins of his people. As God the Father transferred all of the sins of all of his people who would ever believe in him, and these were imputed upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he himself bore our sins in his body. What, what a shock this must have been. Him who knew no sin, the Holy One of Israel, now bearing all of our sins? And let me say this, beloved, on, on, on this day 2,000 years ago, at this appointed hour, he bore your sins. He bore my sins. He did not bear some random sin for a random group of people who someday might hopefully would believe in him. No, God the Father brought the full weight of the law, the full weight of his wrath down upon his son for the sin of his people. Isaiah 53, 10 says that it pleased the Lord to crush him. What an extraordinary death that our Savior died. Let us never forget verse 18. There they crucified him. That is the crucifixion of Christ. This now leads us to number three and in the inscription. The inscription above Christ's head. We read in verse 19 Pilate also wrote an inscription. And put it on the cross. Pilate had written on a small board. The charge that was brought against Jesus. This this was his crime. And so Rome nailed this inscription on the cross above his head. For it to be, be displayed in front of everyone. John tells us it read Jesus of Nazareth. The king of the Jews. And this was intended to insult the Sanhedrin by mocking the Jews of their powerless status before Rome. Uh, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Look at your king. This is your king, and he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? John 1, 46. This is just intended to belittle and to mock and and to taunt both the Lord Jesus Christ and the Jews. This is the one that you claim is your king. Well, Jesus is the king, even if the Jews had denied it. But in a strange way here, what Pilate means for evil, God means for good. For this inscription is now being broadcast from the top of the cross. It is a clear declaration of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And then notice what it says in verse 20. Many, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And again, Israel is flooded with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who have come to attend the Passover feast. And so John adds, many of the Jews read this inscription. The Romans usually crucify prisoners in, in public spaces such as along highways so that the masses would see the price of being paid of challenging or, or resisting Rome's authority. And to make certain everyone could read it, Pilate had the inscription written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. These were the three common languages spoken in the known world. And the fact that John adds a small detail with the other gospel writers don't, I think reminds us that Jesus wasn't merely a Jewish savior. He is also the savior of the world. All have rejected Jesus, but from that vast number composed of both Jews and Gentiles, God has elected a, a, a great mixed race to be his children. It reminds me of what John 1, 9 through 12 says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Well, back to our text in verse 21. Pilate was right. This infuriated the religious leaders. So it says, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Well, in verse 22, no doubt relishing In their humiliation, Pilate, with this stubborn, hardened heart, answered back, What I have written, I have written. He's finally been pushed around long enough. He will not grant their demands any longer. I mean, this is flesh meets flesh. This is carnality meeting the carnality. And Pilate, for the first time, finally stands up to the Jews and says, Nope. What I've written is going to stay there. Well, this takes us to number four and the confiscation. The confiscation from Christ. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. This was customary that the soldiers who would perform the execution were able to divide up the clothing of the one whom they had crucified. And so there were four parts. It would probably have been the the outer garment like a a coat. It would have been his belt. It would have been his sandals. And it would have been probably a head covering. And so while Jesus is is dying on the cross, these men are, are splitting up and gambling the spoils at the foot of the cross. So they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. So there we have the four soldiers. Also his tunic. His tunic was his his undergarments. what, What he wore underneath his clothing. But the tunic, verse 23, was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. We need to understand this. The Lord Jesus Christ is nailed to the cross completely exposed and this only adds to the shame and to the ridicule and to the humiliation as he is struggling to breathe every breath he has not one stitch of clothing on his own mother is standing there at the foot of the cross the humiliation of this whole scene knows no end And we have to be reminded here of the wages that sin has. The cross and this, this whole scene. Are we not reminded here of, of in the beginning and Adam? And the consequence after he had sinned and, and him too became aware of his nakedness and had to take fig leaves to try to cover him and Eve up. Jesus now... The second Adam bears the shame that Adam bore in order that he might clothe you and might clothe me with his righteousness. That there would be a perfect covering for our sins in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So that as we stand before God, though we still fall short, we have been clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. He has clothed us. He has robed us Isaiah 61 10 says I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation he has covered me with the robe of righteousness and when we are in Christ washed clean by the blood of the lamb the father sees only Christ's righteousness Jesus Christ became naked so that you and I could become clothed. Think about that. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, his precious, unique, one of a kind Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. But have eternal life. This is amazing grace. This is what mercy did for me. So in verse 24, they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And though these soldiers acted in purely selfish motives, Little did they know their actions only further the sovereign plan of God the Father and validated biblical accuracy by fulfilling prophecy. This is only further evidence all of this is being orchestrated by God the Father and yet human responsibility these men will be held accountable. But you see this whole orchestration happening to the point that Jesus is pointed and recognized as the anointed one of God, the Messiah. You can't miss this. In verse 24, John wants us to see this. This was to fulfill scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. He's quoting Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18, by the way. Which, Psalm 22 is one of the greatest messianic chapters we have in the Old Testament. In fact, it's uh, in Psalm 22, verse 1, that opens with the very words that the Lord will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which leads us to believe that Jesus was meditating upon Scripture To draw strength as he's hanging upon the cross. And he is fully aware that he is fulfilling the eternal purposes and plan of God the Father for his life and for the salvation of his people. So at the end of verse 24, John simply adds, so the soldiers did these things. Well, this leads us to number five and the dedication. The dedication and... um, I want you to notice something amazing because in the middle of this horrific scene of death. Jesus wasn't focused upon himself as you or I would. He was focused on God the father and. He was focused on father forgive them for they know not what they do. That was the first thing he said not recorded in John second thing he said and John doesn't list it here either but he said to one of the thieves today you will be with me in paradise there's just a fountain of grace that's flowing, uh, flowing from the cross already before he even ascends to the right hand of God the Father just grace upon grace but now comes the third saying from the cross The first saying recorded in John. And John wants us to see how devoted Jesus was to his mother. It says in verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus, there were four women. And uh, these four women were literally at the foot of the cross. The testimony of scripture is that when the shepherd was struck down, the men, the apostles, scattered. Only John is here at the cross. Only John. It's John and four devoted women who love their Savior. And they would not leave his side. Of the four women, John lists first his mother, that's, of course, Mary, and then his mother's sister, that was Salome. She was the mother of James and John. She was... um, married to uh, Zebedee. then there's Mary, the wife of Clopas. She's the mother of James the Less, or James the Lesser. We saw her last week at the tomb. Don't know much more about her, but she was at the tomb with the women. And then, of course, there's Mary Magdalene. Jesus had cast those seven demons out of her. Her life was so radically changed by Christ. She'll follow him to the gates of hell and back. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John. John, of course, is, is so humbled that he has been called and chosen to write these these verses that he will not even refer to himself by name. I'm just the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's that's a fine title. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Jesus is still caring for his mother as he is dying on the cross. Jesus continues fulfilling the law even as he is being unjustly executed. What does the fifth commandment say? Honor your father and mother as the Lord God has commanded you. He he is obedient to the word of God until the very end. I also think of 1 Timothy 5, verse 8 this morning as those finishing this up but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever men we are called to manage our households well to provide and to care for the needs of our families and and we see jesus here caring for his mother even in his final hours this is the dedication of our lord so, verse 27 says, Then Jesus said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. I'm stepping out. You're stepping out. You become a son to her and attend to her needs. Joseph is not around. He's likely passed many Years ago, Jesus was the oldest son. It would have been his responsibility to to care for his mother. Mary was a sinner just like everybody else. But despite her sin and, and despite all of her imperfections, Jesus loved his mother very much and loved her until death. It says, and from that hour on, the disciple took her to his own home. The word home isn't in the original text here. It's been added by the translators. It literally reads, and John took her into his own. Into his own arms. Into his own heart. Into his own life. This brings us to our last heading. Number six, the redemption. The redemption of Christ. Everything has has built up to this last, final, dramatic moment. A year and a half in the Gospel of John. Talking about my hour, my hour, my hour. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. His hour has finally come. And after tenderly establishing his own mother's care. Verse 28 says after this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished. He is fully aware of who he is, uh, why he is here and what he has come to accomplish. He said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. This is an expression of both his humanity and his deity. In his humanity, he was a man who had been beaten, who had been scourged, who was now nailed to a a Roman cross. He was a man who had lost so much blood. He was a man who had been exposed to the uh, extreme heat of of the sun that was coming up in in that part of the world and would have been desperately dehydrated. He longs for a drink. Jesus was a man just like you and me, yet he was without sin. He was fully man, yet he was fully God. And in his omniscience, Jesus knew there was one remaining prophecy to be fulfilled In Psalm 69, 21, David wrote, they also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. So in verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. And this is the same word used in Psalm 69. It's like cheap vinegar. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And Jesus, with full awareness that he is on a path of destiny, one that has been predestined before the foundations of the world, before time even began, he now comes to the final climactic moment. And in verse 30, we read, when Jesus had received The sour wine, he said, it is finished. The work he has come to do is complete. There is nothing that can be added to the finished work of Christ upon the cross. The work of redemption is is now complete. The sacrifice has been made. The reconciliation has been accomplished. The debt of sin has been paid. The head of the serpent crushed. Satan rendered powerless. Every requirement of God's righteous law fulfilled, satisfied, Jesus said, it is finished. In fact, he shouted these words, it says, with a loud cry in the other Gospels, that there are no good works that can be added to this? Finished work of Christ upon the cross? Or, or do you need to add something to this? In fact, if anyone tries to add any of their good works to the finished work of Christ, you may not have the finished work of Christ. You may only come with with. with Empty hands as a beggar. It is the finished work of Christ upon the cross. It is the great pronouncement. Pedalesai in the Greek. It is finished. Means paid in full. Paid in full. And the Bible tells us in, in Colossians 2. That for all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that all of our transgressions, all of our sins were written on what Paul calls a certificate of debt. A certificate of debt. And whenever a criminal was persecuted and the sentence pronounced upon him he would be led into the prison cell and The certificate of debt would then be posted beside his cell and it would list all of the crimes that he had committed and then there was the corresponding punishment to the crime. These were the decrees against us. So for example, if you had done this crime, it was 10 years and then 20 years for this crime and and then five more years for this crime you committed. And you would stay in prison until all of the punishment of your crime had been paid off. That was the certificate of debt. But in Colossians 2, Paul says that Christ has canceled out our certificate of debt. He's taking it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. When Jesus went to the cross... That's what he did. He paid our debt. He, he canceled out the certificate of debt that contained every crime, every sin ever committed. And in doing so, he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. This is Satan and his minions at the cross. And then Paul adds, he meaning Christ made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Uh, The imagery that that Paul is is painting here for us is that of a triumphant Roman general who, after conquering an area or a city, would parade his defeated captives through the streets of, of, say, Rome. At the cross, Christ made a public display of Satan. Satan was defeated at the cross at Calvary. This is the finished work of Christ. Nothing can be added. This is a free gift from God to whosoever would believe. And and with his mission accomplished, the hour has now come for Christ to surrender his life. So we read at the end of verse 30, And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Notice, his life was not taken from him. He gave his life unto death. Jesus was no victim. He was the victor at the cross. He died not in defeat. He died in triumph. He died in victory, having accomplished the work That he came into this world to do. So as I close this message this morning. I ask you have. Have you ever come to Calvary? Have you ever come to. To the foot of the cross? Have you ever come to the empty tomb? Have you ever come to Christ as a sinner. Holding nothing but your certificate of debt. Romans 10, 13 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We have no hope of eternal life, no hope of heaven, except through the blood that was shed upon Calvary's cross when Jesus died in our place. Acts 4 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2 adds, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. If you have never come to the foot of the cross and put your faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you, I beg you to do so. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ right now as a sinner who needs to be saved by his grace. Throw yourself upon the mercy seat of Christ. I want to close just by reading these last two verses I read earlier in the sermon. This is first chapter of John, John 1, 11 through 13. It says, he came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God has put something on your heart this morning, or if you are in need of encouragement or, or prayers, please come forward. We will have people down front here who would be blessed to pray with you. And at this time, I want to invite you to stand as we have one more song of praise. This is a really great one. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood.